I'm Denzel Mohammed, and this is the first Jobmakers Podcast episode of 2022. The world seems pretty open, right? The internet, Netflix, telecommunication, travel, and we benefit daily from that openness. Let's have Mexican for lunch. Let's take a trip. Let's watch the uh, Great British Bake Off. Ryan Reynolds, for heaven's sake, he's Canadian. But we're also pretty closed in by borders. Sovereign nations, state borders, rules and regulations that differ even by neighborhood that restrict what we can do. For Johan Norberg, senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of Open, the story of human progress, the proof is all around us. If history is a guide, openness and diversity mean faster progress, innovation, and entrepreneurship. After all, if it weren't for immigration, there'd be no Coors Bear, no TJ Maxx, no Carnival Cruises, no COVID-19 vaccine. By almost every indicator, the world is better off because it was open to the exchange of ideas and skills that created cures, machinery, and technology. However, Norberg says that with today's obsession with borders, the United States is already losing ground and entrepreneurs and inventors are going elsewhere, as you learn in this week's Jobmakers. Johan Norberg, thank you for joining us on the Jobmakers podcast. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. Thanks for having me. And you're all the way across the world in Sweden, aren't you? Yes, that's right. In dark, cold Sweden for the moment, yeah. <laughs> it's it's getting dark and cold here as well, so <laughs> we can share that. Um, we, we're going to talk about your book, Open, The Story of Human Progress. Um, but I want to take it back a few years ago in your previous book, Progress, of course, Progress, that word again, um, 10 Reasons to look, forward for the fu- to look Forward to the Future. You said, when people are allowed freedom, they don't create chaos, but progress. How does that happen in an increasingly diverse world, and particularly in the context of the U.S.? Well, first of all, the results are in, and uh, we have just had 30 years that, and uh, this is not what we hear on the news, and this is not our everyday assumption, but 30 years that uh, were the best 30 years in human history. When we look at objective indicators like uh, the rise of health, wealth, the uh, reduction in ancient scourges like poverty and illiteracy. We lifted 150,000 people out of extreme poverty every day for 30 years. So apparently something is being done right. And it this is happening because of diversity. If we want to bring something new into the world, if, we, if we're not content with the way things are, then we need innovation, we need new combinations, we need specialization and the ability to exchange with others who've learned something else, who've come up with something else. They might have stumbled onto a new innovation or specialized in a certain way of production. And that takes diversity. If we're all the same with similar knowledge, similar skills, we don't get much new into the world. So it's it's a hodgepodge. That's that it's mixture and, and remixes. That's what creates this progress. And yet, you know, you say this concept of, of longing for some distant past is really having a bad memory. Um, and from what you're saying now, 
it appears as though we're somehow oblivious to the progress that we have made in the recent past. Nearly half of the United States voted twice to get back to some sort of great time or place or idea. Where does that kind of nostalgia or some might say delusion, you might say delusion, where does that really come from? Actually, it comes from ourselves. It comes from human nature. I also happen to think that all the good music that exists in the world was created in the 1980s and everything since then has been awful. Uh, when I talk to audiences around the world, I often ask them, so think about this. When was the world at its most harmonious? When did we lead good lives and, and in harmony with, with one another? And most people end up with saying the era in which they grew up. So uh, people who grew up in the 50s think it's the 50s. People who grew up in the 80s think it's the 80s. Those who grow up now, believe it or not, they are going to look back on this day and age as the, uh, the golden era. Uh, and I think that's, that's basic psychology. I think it's when you grow up, there's this sense of the world as an adventure, but at the same time, it feels safe and secure because your parents are there to hopefully to pick up your problems and your bills. Uh, but then you grow older and you get kids and you have to start worrying about everything that goes wrong and you learn about the world. And everything then seems seems dangerous and, and scary because we still don't have solutions to most of the problems that we're obsessed with today. And we forget that every era faced the same difficulties and didn't have the solutions that we now think of as, oh, that's simple um, back then. So I think it's psychology is very easy to deceive us that, look, something is wrong today for demagogues to tell you that, look, isn't the world a scary place? Let's go back to something safe that we had. And that is dangerous. And that's why we need history and uh, economics and, and data, hard data points and statistics to really tell us how the world is really doing. I was just about to ask, how come we are so oblivious to the progress that we've made? And you talk about demagogues wanting to take us back to some place that felt safe, right? Um, why are we so, expand on this for me, but why are we so oblivious to the progress that we've made and the reasons for that progress? Because problems solved are problems forgotten. We don't think about the problem of smallpox and polio. And uh, soon, hopefully, we'll stop thinking about HIV AIDS. Uh, but we are thinking that the world is going to the dogs because of COVID-19 and the pandemic. For simple and understandable reasons, we pay all our attention to the problems at hand because they are the ones that we have to solve. And then obviously demagogues and politicians, they don't activate you by saying, look, things are pretty good, right? <laughs> so vote for me if you don't care. <laughs> it's, that doesn't work. They have to tell you something is worrying. People are, we have disloyal elites and strangers trying to tear everything down. You need me, basically. And the media obviously has an interest in scaring us, shocking us, because then we have to turn to the news. Um, no, nobody pays attention to flights that landed safely, but if there's a plane crash, obviously that makes the news. Talk about this further in the context of immigration. That's very interesting because we can see exactly the same kind of development there. When you go back and look at um, waves of migration to different places, the first reaction people have is often I mean, there might be a need uh, socially, economically for the migrant, 
but it's also scary. New people from another culture, we don't know, are they going to integrate or not? And it looks scary. So, I mean, in the United States, uh, when you got strangers like Swedes over there in the mid-19th century and, and Germans, even people who, who liked migration, immigration, like uh, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin said, this is a little bit worrying because they come from non-democratic societies. And will they ever be able to integrate? And then obviously it didn't take long until they, Swedes and Germans, were seen as they are the idol, ideal model of what an immigrant should be like, especially compared to the dangerous Catholics who are coming now, the Italians and the, the Irish, because they're they're dangerous, they're criminals, they're and they have another faith. Uh, they they uh, are loyal to Rome and the Pope, so they will never be integrated. Uh, and obviously it didn't take long before, before they got integrated and sort of started working, build families, and people said, oh, they are great, but look at the next wave, the Chinese or, or something like that. And we repeat the same thing over and over again. The latest wave of migrants are always scary, especially compared to previous ones, because we've already learned them, we've met them, and we know that they didn't tear our society down, they made it stronger. So you start your newest book open, The Story of Human Progress, with the time that then-President Trump scribbled in the margins of a speech he was about to give, trade is bad. Yet, you go on to argue very vividly that trade is basically indispensable to human life. It's part of society. It's part of civilization. Why were those three words so appealing to so many Americans? Yes, that is really the the thing we've got to think about and and uh, and try to understand uh, because trade is so incredibly important. Uh, it's the reason why mankind conquered the planet because people, Homo sapiens, learned early on how to cooperate with strangers and find mutual gains, and and therefore the moment somebody stumbled onto a way of controlling fire or inventing the wheel, we could all learn from it. Uh, or going how to go into space or read the genome of a new virus and come up with a vaccine. That's what makes us strong, the ability to exchange and trade. But the reason why so many people believe uh, what Trump says, that trade is bad and dangerous, is that people often think that the economy is a zero-sum game. They think that if somebody else is gaining from this transaction with us, then we must be the losers. Uh, so it's always something that leaves us exposed to to outsiders. And, and that always looks bad. And obviously, this is a, a just a, a myth. It's uh, the reason why we've gotten so strong and rich as we are is specialization and trade. But it doesn't feel like it, especially if the others are seeing more rapid growth than we do. Then you begin to think, oh, it's the Mexicans and the Chinese. They are the ones gaining. It would be better if we concentrated production back home and, and, and avoided trade. And But if that were the case with national borders, well, why wouldn't that be the case with city borders? Why should um, Manhattan buy from even from Brooklyn? Uh, shouldn't we be safer if we kept everything in Manhattan? You can turn your abilities and your hard work into the other things that you need. So basically, the more access you have to such a machine, the better off you are. Trump and many protectionists are saying is that, look, why do you produce um, 
iPhones in China? Wouldn't it be better if we produce them back home? And in that case, we would get all the rewards rather than giving some of them to the Chinese. And that's a misunderstanding of how specialization works. Because when you leave some of the routine manufacturing to another place, yes, it's good for them because they get jobs and they get revenue. But it also means that you can specialize more of your workforce in more productive areas. So more people who do the design and the programming and the marketing and the distribution. So if you look at a cell phone, an iPhone in, in your shop, you see how much is going to the Chinese? Well, around a little bit more than 1% of the price you pay for your iPhone goes to the Chinese. It's not like they get all of it. Uh, it's it, Most of it go to American workers and to uh, Apple and to the uh, tax authorities. And, and that's what specialization does. If you would ha had had to do all of those things back home in the US, well, then you would have to pay much more for that simple manufacturing, which means that many would buy a Huawei phone or something like that from China instead. Um, and it would mean that you'd have to have much less productive production back home. So it's a, a twin loss. In your book, Open, you say that your argument is that under open institutions, people will solve more problems that, than they create, no matter their personality traits. And it will increase the chance that the paths of people with different traits cross and that their thoughts and work can cross-fertilize. You say that this will happen. How do you know that, that the, this is certain going forward? Well, I hope I don't disappoint you if I admit that I'm not certain that this will go forward because it depends on our choices and it depends on politics. Uh, what I'm saying is that if we have open institutions, if we allow our societies to be open to surprises, to people coming up with new things and being free to exchange this, we'll get great innovations and discoveries and, uh, and wealth production. It's not just... Uh, history and the study of human creativity, it's its mathematics, you know, uh, as they say in programming, uh, with a sufficient number of eyeballs looking at code, every bug is shallow because someone is bound to see the problem and fix it. Well, it's the same thing with the world. The more eyeballs that are directed to our problems, uh, whatever they are, the greater the chance that we'll come up with solutions to it. But at the same time, we live in an era where people are afraid of this kind of openness, where we have lots, plenty of demagogues telling us that, no, it's safe to, to hide behind walls, behind tariff barriers. And once in a while, they do succeed and they might be able to turn inwards. Um, and, and in that case, we won't see as much of the dynamic societies and innovation will be, we'll be weaker for it. So it's not automatic that this happens. Uh, and that's, by the way, why I write my books. If it was automatic, I could go and do something else instead. Um, but it's necessary. It has to happen. We have to keep our institutions, our countries, our, our world open to continue to make progress. And I think of the example of Moderna, which came up with one of the first vaccines. Yeah. And <laughs> Derek Rossi, immigrant from Canada, Nubar Afian and Kenneth, it, it's, it's all these different people from all these different places who came together to found this company. Pfizer, the same thing. Immigrant yeah. co-founders. Um, we see it 
you know, it's it's there in the headlines every day, this kind of innovation that is drawn from, as you say, different eyeballs coming from different places. Right. And 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 even more, a fight, the reason why Pfizer could do it was that they cooperated with BioNTech in Germany, and they were founded by and are led by two immigrants and descendants of immigrants from Turkey. It always astounds me that this nation was built by immigrants, people who who fled other places, who had some sort of desire to succeed and to live and to thrive that they couldn't have done in their homeland. It's much the same today with immigrants who are coming. That that inherent I would call it an entrepreneurial spirit that often leads to them uh, starting businesses at twice the rate of the U.S. born. Um, but one of the reasons that that Americans are turned off by immigration as an issue is the chaos that they see. And you mentioned the media and demagogues earlier on um, blowing up certain things about immigration, and that includes the southern border, where we have these campsites of immigrants from South America, Central America, Haiti, different places. Um, speak a little bit to that idea of the border actually causing that chaos vis-a-vis -vis your concept of openness. Yes, there is a reason why nativists and anti-immigration groups always try to show us vivid imagery of waves of migrants, not individuals, but it looks like chaos and, and just large groups, because we dislike chaos and, and groups approaching, it triggers this tribalist mentality and it is scary to us and we want to do anything to just shut it down. So we can often see that in Europe, we've seen how far-right groups, they use imagery that they find in in uh, the other side of the continent of something that looks like chaos and tells us this is happening here because immediately we, we react with our reptilian brains. The problem, of course, is that this is something that you create with borders. That's not how people act. If people are going for employment or uh, moving to a place where they uh, find better options, moving into a new apartment, it's not chaos. It's not uh, anything like that if you look at this on an individual level. But when you suddenly impose a border blocking people from doing it, obviously people are bound to end up there and trying to do anything to get in if that's the only option, if there are no legal, uh, simple official means to do that. If you did the same thing in Manhattan, just imposed a border across the whole uh, island, obviously people would concentrate right by that border trying to get over because that's the only way to meet with others, with friends and relatives and do business and, and move to a place that might be more um, giving more option to, to you in your life. And that would look like chaos as well, but that's not what Manhattan looks like uh, when it's open, when, when you can easily cross from one end to the other. Even during the pandemic, you know, foreign-born healthcare workers who could have moved to different states that were experiencing, you know, overcrowding of ICUs and things like that, but because of state restrictions or federal restrictions, they could not do that. Um, and I even think of probably the most mobile workforce in the U.S., which is undocumented immigrants. They can you know, it's almost like an underground railroad to move to states where they need uh, meatpacking workers or poultry workers or, you know, 
agricultural workers, fracking workers, um, and the idea of them being able to, to, to move to these places to fill those gaps, we don't even recognize that. Um, so therefore, ultimately, how do you think individuals could adopt a more open mindset in their day-to-day lives? Rather than looking for the signs of how somebody is different, we can override it and learn that, well, it's the differences that can teach us and, and something new and gives us new opportunities, but also realizing them if if somebody else is a human being, it means that there are other circles of identity, personality, traits, tribe, if you want to use that word, that you have in common with them. Yeah, they might be foreigners, they might be Norwegians, but he's also a father, he might also be interested in uh, history, he might be cheering for the same English team in soccer, he might be listening to electronic music, you can always find those uh, different commonalities between yourself and other individuals if you look hard enough, if you don't think of people as belonging just to one group. And that, I think, is the beauty of a more open and individualistic world, to realize that we, we don't just have one kind of identity. We're made up of multitudes of, of legions. No, no, Johan, I think that's too much work for the average person. <laughs> Um, could be, could be. Your book, Open, The Story of Human Progress, is available for, for sale. Um, thank you very much, Johan Norberg, for joining us on the Jobmakers podcast. Thank you so much, Jensel. This was a pleasure. Jobmakers is a weekly podcast about immigrant entrepreneurship and contribution produced by Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston, and the Immigrant Learning Center in Malden, Massachusetts, a not-for-profit that gives immigrants a voice. Thanks for joining us for today's fascinating conversation on how immigration enriches our entrepreneurial and innovation ecosystems. Got comments? Know someone we should talk to? Email Denzil, that's D-E-N-Z-I-L, at jobmakerspodcast.org. And please leave us a review. I'm Denzil Mohammed. Join us next Thursday at noon for another episode of Jobmakers.